Let us turn to Acts chapter 16. And I know I had told you before that we're going to do Philippians. Well, let's talk about how the Philippian church came to existence. So that's why we're going to be in Acts chapter 16. We're setting it all up. So it all makes sense, right? So, and uh, while I'm going to be preaching primarily on six to fifteen, I'm just I'm going to read uh, one to fifteen, so we have some context. Uh, Paul, of course, here is on his second missionary journey, so we'll talk a little bit about that as well. Uh, Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in their numbers daily. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them to. So, passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman called Lydia, from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, instruct us sinners who have been cleansed by Christ and returned to you through your word. Help us to see all that you have done for us in Christ. Help us to see our part in your mission of gathering your people uh, through making Jesus and the gospel known. In other words, by teaching sinners your way. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. We often face the difficult task of sorting out what next. Some of you are sort of have wrestled with some of these things. Uh, you know, Chris, where should I live? Tucson or Detroit? Things like that. We, these are important questions. They're not small questions, and we often aren't exactly sure what the answer ought to be. It is no uh, less difficult when that question is one that concerns ministry. Where should I be preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ? There have been others who have wrestled with these things, and they haven't always gotten it right, at least from our perspective. Or at least uh, they didn't quite go in a straight, direct passion, uh, pattern as they thought they might. For instance, Judson was thinking that he would go to India, and he ended up in Burma after a short stay in India. William Carey 
he wanted to minister in Polynesia, and he ended up in India. And then, talking about really missing the boat, Dr. Livingston. Yes, that Dr. Livingston, I presume. His plan was to go bring the gospel to China, and somehow he ended up into the heart of Africa. And so we don't always end up where we think we're going to end up. But that doesn't mean that uh, God is not in control of all of these things. And as we look at this passage and we, we, we wrestle with what's going on in the life of Paul and his ministry team, uh, we recognize uh, that he, again, is not in control of this. He is a man on a mission, but it's not his mission. And he does not define the boundaries of that mission nor where it takes place. Our big idea this morning is that Jesus directs his people so they fulfill his mission. Again, not their own. Let's start with the notion that uh, Jesus directs the mission. And we see this primarily in the first few uh, verses here. But let's again get back to the, the background of, of what's going on here. First off, we see at the beginning of Acts, this, I'm going to quickly summarize Acts, uh, Jesus declaring that the disciples were to wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit had come, and then when the Spirit comes upon them, they were to be His witnesses. And the power of that Spirit in Jerusalem, and in Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And so the whole purpose of the book of Acts is to describe how it is that they were His witnesses in the power of the Holy Spirit in all of those places. And so Paul is one of the people who's going to be taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. But let's note that. In the power of the Holy Spirit. And so in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit falls upon God's people. And so now they are empowered for ministry. And that begins in the very, right there, in Acts chapter 2, as Peter delivers a sermon to the people who are wondering what in the world is going on. It's not until later on in Acts that we see Paul, who was an enemy of Christ and an enemy of Christ's people, ends up on the road to Damascus and being struck silent and blind by by Christ. And it's revealed that he too is now a part of Jesus' mission. He has been drafted by the King of Kings to partake in this mission. And so when we come to Acts 16, what we find is that uh, Paul is now on his second missionary journey, and a part of what they're doing on this journey is uh, relating the f- results of the council in Jerusalem to the churches they planted on the first missionary journey. Now, there's been a, some change of personnel that has taken place. We see at the end of chapter 15 uh, that Paul, at that point, did not trust John Mark, did not want John Mark going with him, and so then a conflict emerged between he and Barnabas, who was uh, a cousin of Mark. And so Paul drafted Silas, and so the two of them went to visit the churches that Paul had previously planted. And we see that along the way in Lystra, they pick up a new guy to take the place of John Mark, a young disciple by the name of Timothy, who would become very important later on. So Paul is engaged in this process uh, that is reflected in our reading from Acts 26, where uh, Paul, before King Agrippa, is uh, discussing his conversion as well as his call to ministry to uh, turn people from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they might receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Christ. And so Paul, Silas, and Timothy are making the rounds of these churches. And I want to just stop for a second and, and look at Verse 5, just to note one thing. And so the churches were strengthened in their faith, and they increased in numbers daily. What strengthened them? This message that came from Jerusalem about the, the gospel and its implications. That Gentiles didn't need to be circumcised in order to be disciples of Jesus Christ. And so the gospel is what strengthened them, and being strengthened, they added to their numbers daily. It's always the gospel that strengthens churches, and it's always the gospel that enables churches to grow daily or monthly in their numbers. So, 
Paul is seeing this incredible ministry taking place, these churches growing, uh, being strengthened, and what does he decide to do? It doesn't say explicitly, but it, uh, the implication is there that he must have decided, I can't go back. I'm too encouraged. And it seems like he wanted to increase the extent of this missionary journey. Meaning, he wanted to go to cities that he hadn't been to before and plant new churches. Paul has been strengthened, and Paul wants to see others come to faith in Jesus Christ. And so, this is where we hit the hard part. Okay? Because... Having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia, Paul apparently initially wanted to go further southwest, closer to the, the western coast of the province of Asia, okay, and bring the gospel to places like Ephesus. And yet we see he was not permitted, he was forbidden from doing this. And this seems strange to us because Is it not from Acts 1 and 2, the Holy Spirit who empowers people, Jesus' people, to bear witness? And yet this same Spirit is forbidding them from bearing witness in a particular place, a particular region. This doesn't make sense in my small brain. And perhaps it doesn't make sense in yours. We come across things like Second Peter chapter three, and and it talks about how the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And depending on how you understand this theologically, this passage in Acts sixteen presents issues for you, because the Spirit at this point is not allowing them those particular people to hear the gospel and come to faith and repentance. Do you, do you see the, the strange thing that I'm, that I'm thinking? Okay. When we judge the Lord by our feeble sense, sometimes it doesn't always make sense. Okay. And so we must trust Him. We're not sure exactly how the Holy Spirit hindered them prevented them, denied them, but we are we are to embrace this, that it was not the work of Satan, but in fact the work of the Holy Spirit. When things don't go the way we expect them to go, we often are quick to blame Satan. We turn into the church lady on Saturday Night Live. Could it be Satan? And in this instance, it's the Holy Spirit, not the unclean spirit who, for some reason, puts up a roadblock so that this ministry team could not go to the place they desired to go, just as Dr. Livingston couldn't go to China. It was prohibited him, so to speak, forbidden of him to go to China to preach the gospel, and the door was opened instead to Africa. I understand this in some ways because... Our plan was never to come to Tucson. Our plan was to get closer to family, not farther from family. And yet, here we are, eight years later, still in Tucson. Okay? So, thankfully, God does not always answer our desires, our thoughts, but He has a good plan, a better plan than ours. So Paul, not sure what was what he was supposed to do, tried to head north, apparently. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. They have this, ex- this similar experience of some sort of, uh, unknown to us anyway, barrier that is there, so they could not bring the gospel to the northern part of the province of Asia. And I know that if I am the Apostle Paul right now, I'm really angry. I'm really frustrated. I had those experiences when I was uh, looking for a call where it seemed like nothing was turning up positive and 
wanting to yell, what do you want from me? And so I, I, I suspect that Paul would probably was very confused by this. Let's not assume that Paul was this perfect person who did not uh, get angry, did not get frustrated and dismayed. But he probably was going, what in the world? Where am I supposed to go? I can't go here. I can't go here. What does that mean? As he struggled with this. But let us also stop and note that in one place it says the Holy Spirit, and in another place here it says the Spirit of Jesus. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus. Okay? The Holy Spirit has been sent by Jesus in order to bring about the rule of Jesus. The Holy Spirit's role is not to draw attention to Himself, but we see uh, the attention is meant to be placed upon Jesus. And so I like J.I. Packer's way of expressing that in his book, Knowing God, that the Holy Spirit is like a floodlight or a spotlight that shines upon Jesus, trying to point people's attention to Jesus, the Son who worked for our salvation. And so this Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, is working, in a sense, under the authority of Jesus, which doesn't make sense to us because He's equally God. And yet we see that Jesus is the one who is directing the mission from the right hand of God the Father through the ministry of the Holy Spirit upon earth. And so the work of Jesus occurs through the ministry of the Holy Spirit amongst His people on earth. So where does that leave Paul and Silas and Timothy? It leaves them going to a port city, Troas, which means Trojan. So here they are at this uh, port city with no idea of where they're going, and the, the text says that a vision appeared to Paul in the night. So Paul had a night vision, a dream perhaps, but uh, nonetheless, in this vision, he has a man from Macedonia saying, come, help us. There was a great plea that was given in the course of this vision. What does Paul do? Well, they plan to go to Macedonia is what they plan to do. But why do they plan to go to Macedonia? Let's not think that they were unthinking people. This little word that's thrown in there, concluding, has the idea that they put things together in their minds. They didn't just, Paul didn't just see a vision, wake up, tell everyone the vision, and they all just packed up and went. But they put things together in their minds. They reasoned together in order to understand God's call and that that, that call was for them to evangelize the people of Macedonia. It's important for us to recognize that. Because of the way in which God leads us, I think uh, it's important for us to understand as we think about our own lives and how God is going to help us make decisions like that. One way is in... Let's get my little triangle here. God's Word is the primary... And the most, in the foundational aspect of how he leads us, he leads us by his word. Okay? Paul had the mission. They were to evangelize people. They were to make known and bear witness to Jesus Christ. That's the fundamental part of how God led him. That, that was an important thing. But there's also, uh, the reality of the reasoning together. Sometimes we need to think, whether it's amongst ourselves or you and your spouse, if you have one of those, or a great trusted friend, or reasoning together to understand how that call is meant to be played out amongst you personally with in light of your gifts, abilities, interests, and everything else. But there's the third part of that, and that is God's providence, the circumstances in which you find yourself. 
And so thinking about God's call, thinking about who you are, thinking about the circumstances, that is what leads them to the conclusion that they were to go to Macedonia. And they were to make Jesus known, to bear witness to Jesus and his work in Macedonia. And God works the same sort of way in your life as well. So Jesus, who shares his mission with us, directs us in the fulfillment of that particular mission. Secondly, the mission of Jesus, sorry, the message of Jesus is the mission. Okay? The whole purpose is to make Jesus known. And so uh, Paul and Silas, Timothy, and anyone else that uh, happened to be as part of their team, they hop in a ship, they cross the Aegean Sea, and they end up eventually in Philippi, but first they land at this other city because Philippi is 10 miles approximately inland from uh, Neapolis, new city. Okay. They traveled on what's called the Via Ignacia. Interesting little road. And it's sort of their version of I-10. Probably uh, in better shape than I-10. Um, <laughs> but it stretched from what we now call, well, what they called Constantinople, would call later Constantinople, all the way to Italy. And so this was a, a trade road created by the Romans that stretched almost the entire width of the Roman Empire. Okay, and so this was a nice uh, broad road for travel to, and armies. When it's the Roman peace, you're going to have the armies, okay? So uh, enabling them to travel the width of the kingdom. And you can actually still see paving stones from that road today, which is why it definitely was in better condition than the roads of Tucson, um, which we're not sure if you're going to see next week, okay? They're falling apart. But this road remained. What was important about Philippi was not only was it on this road, this important trade road and military road, but it was also a colony. And so Philippi itself has this sort of illustrious history. Uh, it was named Philippi after King Philip II of Macedonia. Uh, he kind of liked it because there were gold mines near it. And wanting the gold mines, he conquered the city. And then to protect those same gold mines, he fortified the city and made it strong so that it would be able to protect his gold mines. When the Greeks were finally uh, overtaken by the Romans, the city remained. It remained called Philippi after Philip. Uh, and it actually became the site of a famous battle. And I'm sure Mike Pixley is probably going, I wonder if Steve will say it. I wonder if Steve will say it. Yes, the Battle of Philippi in which Antony and Octavius, uh, the imperialist forces, took on the more republican armies, and don't put that in our context, okay, of uh, Cassius and Brutus. Any those last two names sound familiar? Okay, yes. This is all after... Julius Caesar was assassinated by Cassius and Brutus. And so now you have the, after Julius's death, you have the battle for the empire, and this is the, the ultimate battle for the empire took place just outside of Philippi. And of course, Antony and Octavius won, and so you know what that means? That means now they have to fight each other <laughs> to see who will be the ruler of Rome, and of course Octavius won and then took the name, um, and now it just fell out of my head. <laughs> yes, Caesar Augustus. Um, thank you. But before that, that split with Octavius, uh, Antony had declared that Philippi would be a colony of Rome, okay, in honor of the victory. So that was a place where Roman soldiers who retired would commonly go. And so it took on a very much more Roman feel than it, than it did a Greek feel in terms of the culture of the city. And Octavius, when he became Augustus Caesar, he maintained uh, Philippi as a colony of Rome. 
So that will play an important role in Paul's letter later on. But it makes it a very significant city uh, as a result. When they come to the city, they apparently discover that there is no synagogue because on the Sabbath day, they don't go to a synagogue. Instead, they say they go to the riverside where we supposed there were, uh, there was a place of prayer. And so what would commonly happen for Jews if they were traveling in a, in a Gentile city that did not have a synagogue is they would go to a place where there was water outside of the city. Uh, water would be important because of the, the ceremonial washings that would take place to wash their hands so that they're clean in order to pray. And so they go to the riverside hoping to find some Jewish people uh, with whom they can pray um, because you're not so sure when you're in a Roman colony how many Jewish people you're going to find. But they did not, of course, find a synagogue. So what's Paul doing here? Remember, Jesus called Paul to the Gentiles. And yet... When Paul talks about the gospel in Romans 1, he says that it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, first the Jew and then the Gentile. So it's easy to misunderstand him just in terms of the fact that the gospel itself went first to the Jews and then would go to the Gentiles. I think it also reflects his pattern of ministry when we look in the book of Acts. Whenever Paul goes to a new city, he generally first seeks out the Jews, goes to the synagogue, preaches, and then when he's kicked out, he goes to the Gentiles. Okay, So here he's going first to the Jews because they have been prepared through their knowledge of the Scriptures. Okay. Years later, when Paul is writing Timothy, he says to Timothy that... Uh, through the scriptures, you were made wise for salvation unto Jesus Christ. And so he went first to the Jews because they had an understanding of salvation from the scriptures. And Paul was there to declare from, from that how Jesus fulfills the scriptures. And so finding this group of women that are there, they begin to evangelize the women with the gospel. They begin to reason with them from the scriptures. What's important here, I think, is the fact that they're women. That Paul viewed them as valuable. That unlike Greek culture and unfortunately sometimes Jewish culture, uh, he did not view them as second-class people. But he thought that they were, wor- they were people worthy of hearing the gospel so that they might believe the gospel. There's a infamous Jewish prayer, and one of the, uh, the prayers by a man, and he says, I thank you, God, that you did not make me three things, and one of those things, the first one of those things is, a woman. And Paul apparently does not share that sentiment because he was not put off by the fact that there were only women there. But he says, to them I must bring the good news of Jesus. There's one woman who is mentioned by name, and that is Lydia. Lydia is really interesting uh, because she's likely a Macedonian, meaning she was from this region, but she is connected to the city of Thyatira. Why would that be? Well, that used to be a Greek or Macedonian colony in the province, what is now the province of, province of Asia. And so her family likely relocated to the colony. She got in, engaged in this uh, industry of the production and the selling of the purple fabric for which Thyatira was well known. And now she has gone back to Macedonia, uh, lives there, and most likely imports the purple fabric. Okay, She may still have a factory uh, or business connections there in Thyatira, but now she is living in Philippi. She's the one that Luke mentions. 
Because, look at, remember, Luke is an associate of Paul, and this is one of those things that the theology of Paul continually bleeds into the book of Acts. There is therefore now no slave nor free, there is no male nor female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. He's relating how the gospel is received by women here in Philippi. Now, Lydia is identified as a worshiper of God. This means that she was a God-fearer. That was a Gentile who uh, worshipped the God of the Jews, Yahweh, but had not become Jewish herself, which seems to indicate that she has some commitment issues. I remember, um, because I was at a wedding yesterday, I remember a moment from the day I got married, and I had checked in early to the hotel, in which we would be spending the night. I took a nap, since it was an evening wedding, and then I was getting dressed in my tuxedo, and I remember standing in front of the mirror in the bathroom, and suddenly it hit me. There's no turning back. And for, for like three minutes, it was sort of like, not I want to run, but the enormity of the decision and the vows I was about to make hit home. I make those vows, there's no turning back. Lydia had not yet made vows. There was still turning back with regard to her relationship with God, it would seem. She had not fully committed to Him. There was something that drew her, but she's sort of like the person who's just checking out the church, checking out Christianity, not sure if uh, she wants to commit to uh, this doctrine and all of that. And so Paul most likely is building upon her knowledge because as a God-fearer, she would have some knowledge of the Old Testament. And he is presenting her, uh, sorry, presenting Jesus as the fulfillment of all of those covenant promises that she already knew. How, how Jesus is the Passover lamb that was slain so that God would pass over our sin. How Jesus is the scapegoat that God sends into the wilderness so that He might embrace us. Uh, That Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. He is the seed through whom the nations shall be blessed. And you, by the way, Lydia, are part of the nations because you're not Jewish. All of these things. Revealing Jesus as the one crucified for sinners and raised on the third day in fulfillment of the Scriptures. Presenting Jesus as a Savior for sinners. It's almost like Jesus in Emmaus. Paul is opening the Scriptures to reveal the Messiah both in His sufferings and subsequent glory so that Lydia and these other women can see. And it is this message of Jesus That is the mission that we share with Paul. This is the mission we have been given with Paul to make Jesus known. And let's do another triangle. Once again, the Word of God. In our evangelism, we are intended to present that which the Word of God says about Jesus. Who He is, what He's done. But that's not all we give. That's not all we have to give because there's also us. There is how God has changed us through that gospel message. Similar to Paul standing before Agrippa, he just didn't declare Jesus as the Savior of sinners, but he talked about how Jesus met him on the road to Damascus. And how Jesus then began to Utilize him as a missionary, an apostle to the gospel. And so you have a testimony of how Jesus found you, how you once were lost, but now you're found. So you have a testimony 
And there's a third part of this as we think about evangelism, and that's the other person. Where are they? What are they struggling with? And how do, how does the gospel of Jesus Christ apply to what they're struggling with? as well as how Jesus may have dealt with a similar thing in our lives. So we can bring both our testimony as well as the objective gospel from the Scriptures to bear on their particular struggles and circumstances. And so we should have what I crazily call a triperspectival understanding of evangelism. That true evangelism encompasses all of these things. So, Jesus directing. Jesus is the message. How do we know exactly whom to speak to? And I, I probably should have brought this up in my first point, but I'll say that if you're not, uh, haven't been doing this already, one of the important things to do is probably to pray for people you know and to pray for gospel opportunities in the places where God has put you. God has already directed you in many ways. He's put you in a neighborhood. He's put you in a job. And so there are relationships that are there. Are you praying now for God to make use of those opportunities for for you to recognize the opportunities God places before you? That's the first part of the work of evangelism. Praying just as Paul prayed as he was trying to figure out where next, O Lord, and then the vision came. We are to pray. And so when those opportunities pop up, we'll recognize them for what we are, what they are and we'll begin to make Jesus known to those people. Because when Jesus does direct people to you, give them the message of Jesus. Sometimes it's really clear. A few years ago, some of you might remember, Karen had a neighbor who knocked on her door. Karen wasn't trying to, to look for people uh, you know, like, which neighbor should I share the gospel with? Her neighbor came to her. What's this thing you believe? I see these people here all the time. Can you talk to me about this? And so they began to meet and to study scripture. And this woman came to faith in Jesus Christ. Sometimes God just plops them in our lap. When he does, simply be faithful. Simply make known the truth. And so we share in the mission to bring the message of Jesus to people who need to hear. Thirdly, Jesus changes hearts through this mission. You see, Paul's efforts were not in vain, and it was not really all about Paul's efforts. We see, first off, that Luke focuses on Lydia, but he also focuses on what Jesus did, not simply what Paul did. Okay? We see that the Lord opened her heart to pay attention. And so, while you have Paul being faithful and discharging his responsibilities and making the message known, you also have God fulfilling his part in doing what Paul can't do, and that is opening the heart of Lydia. We've seen this before in other places like John 6. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. 2 Corinthians 4. It is God who shines the light of Jesus into our hearts so that we can see the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ. Okay, Apart from a work of God, people will not receive the message even if it is clearly presented to them. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention. Let's think of this for a moment. There is a tendency amongst people today to read our understanding of the heart back into Scripture. In fact, I'm reading a book right now, and it's driving me crazy, because uh, he keeps talking about the heart as the seat of emotions. And while it is, that's not all it was for the ancient audience. For them, it was the center of the person, which included the, the seat of the emotions, but it was far greater than that. It was kind of like the, well, the heart of the matter. <laughs> the center of who you are, which included thinking 
As a man thinks in his heart, so he is. So it's not just about emotions, it's about reason. They didn't think, oh, brain, head. Who you are. And so the Lord opened up who Lydia was in order that she might pay attention. He circumcised her heart to take language from Deuteronomy. To take language from Ezekiel, he removed her heart of stone and gave her a heart of flesh. Sometimes this is controversial. I should have brought my glasses. forgot my reading glasses. Nonetheless, uh, J.I. Packer in his book Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God uh, refers to a conversation between Charles Simeon, who was an Anglican preacher, um, and John Wesley. They had met. And uh, both of them uh, refer to this day. It's You can find this day in John Wesley's diary, or his journal, and uh, Simeon also speaks of this. And this is from his account of the story. They met, and Simeon said, Sir, I understand that you are called an Arminian. And I have been sometimes called a Calvinist. And therefore, I suppose... We are to draw daggers. But before I consent to begin the combat, with your permission, I will ask you a few questions. Pray, sir, do you feel yourself a depraved creature, so depraved that you would never have thought of turning to God if God had not first put it into your heart? Yes, said Wesley. I do indeed. And, and do you utterly despair of recommending yourself to God by anything you can do and look for salvation solely through the blood and righteousness of Christ? Yes, solely through Christ, Wesley replied. But, sir, supposing you were at first saved by Christ, are, are you not somehow or other to save yourself afterwards by your own works? No, Wesley said, I must be saved by Christ from first To last, Simeon replied, Allowing then that you were first turned by the grace of God, are you not in some way or other to keep yourself by your own power? No. What then are you to be upheld every hour and every moment by God, as much as an infant is in his mother's arms? Yes, altogether. And is all your hope in the grace and mercy of God to preserve you unto his heavenly kingdom? Yes, Wesley said, I have no hope but in him. Then, Simeon concluded, Then, sir, with your leave, I will put up my dagger again. For this is all my Calvinism. This is my election, my justification by faith, my final perseverance. It is in substance all that I hold and as I hold it. And therefore, if you please, instead of searching out terms and phrases to be a ground of contention between us, we will cordially unite in those things wherein we agree. Interesting, isn't it? I'm hoping we all can agree on the basis of this verse that unless the Lord opens a heart, there will be no belief. What does it mean? Presumably, she called upon the name of the Lord. Lord in the Old Testament typically refers to Yahweh, and we see, for instance, in Joel 2, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This verse is used in Acts chapter 2, when we see that Peter, in his sermon, quotes it and says, It shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But there's a difference. This kurios, this Greek translation of Yahweh, is now used primarily of Jesus the Lord. 
We see it again, this passage, referred to in Romans chapter 10. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so Lydia here, who is a Gentile or a Greek, has called upon the name of the Lord and is saved. But hearts must be opened for people so they may call upon Him. Jesus is the one who opens Lydia's heart and Jesus is the one, if you believe in Jesus, is the one who has opened yours. So we see that her faith then has consequences. Now she commits. Before she wasn't willing to be known amongst the people of God, now she does want to be known as among the people of God. And so we see the text says, she was baptized. And then just to make it fun for all of us in this room and her household. Let's be honest. Whether you are a, you hold to believer's baptism or infant baptism, there is silence with regard to your position in this passage. We have the baptism of the household, but we have no mention explicitly of the faith of that household, do we? And, of course, there is no explicit mention that there were any infants in that household. So there's silence on both sides. Please don't pick up any daggers. <laughs> okay. But we all come to this text with certain assumptions or presuppositions. Okay? And those assumptions or presuppositions determine how we are going to understand that text. Whether we are going to supply, therefore the household must have believed, or, well, maybe infant baptism is okay. All right? There are assumptions that we often don't check, that we don't think about. And, of course, you think your assumptions are right. And I think my assumptions are right. And so we have the dilemma. I'm not trying to pick up daggers with my brothers and sisters. Really, I'm not. But could it be that Paul applied the practice of Genesis 17 with regard to circumcision to the household of Lydia? Both were signs of initiation into the covenant community. And so, even if you don't believe in infant baptism, hopefully you'll grant that is a possibility. Since, while there is no explicit condemnation of that practice, or sorry, there's no explicit um, command to practice it in the same way, neither is there an explicit prohibition against doing it in the same way. See, once again, we have the argument of silence addressing both positions. So there should be no shedding of blood over this because the blood of Jesus has been shed for us and for our salvation. But this we know. She believed and she was baptized. She publicly revealed herself as a Christian, declaring that she had been united with Christ, similar to how Abraham did in his circumcision. Her heart was open to the gospel, but then her heart was also opened to others. Because it, she then begins to prevail upon them. I've gone way too long. If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord... Come to my house and stay. Hey, the gospel comes with a house key. <laughs> she, she believes, she's baptized, 
And she almost immediately says, come stay at my house. Her house becomes the likely base of operation for the ongoing mission to Macedonia that was taking place in Philippi. Paul and Silas and Timothy went and stayed at her place. And while they still left, in a sense, to to go to this riverside spot so they could interact with uh, Jewish people and bring them the gospel, they lived with Lydia. And so we see that the gospel changes hearts. And this is revealed in a couple of ways, including baptism for those who come from a, a, a Gentile or unbelieving context. But more fundamentally, more fundamental than that is how has it changed your heart? Do you love the people of God? Do you welcome the people of God? Or are you, are you sort of standoffish with the people of God? Lydia's all in. She used to be standoffish, but now she's fully committed to God and His people. And so should we. How are you on mission? Her, her idea of mission at this point anyway was bring these men into my home, learn from them, su- support them, and encourage them. That's being on mission. Okay? So it was Jesus' mission to bring sinners back to God to instruct them in His way. Jesus shares His mission with those very same sinners who now believe, giving them the Holy Spirit so that they too can testify about Jesus and His work. Jesus then leads us through His Word, through our circumstances, and through our thought processes to know who we should evangelize. So we bring them this message of what Jesus has done for sinners, how He worked to open our hearts, and how He can change them through faith and repentance. So people whose hearts have been changed will want to be identified with Christ and His people. They'll want to share in the mission. And we can't just say that was good for Acts 16 because Jesus, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, continues to fulfill His mission this way. Much of this is not just descriptive, but prescriptive. Let's pray. Father, I thank You that uh, Your Word is intended to instruct us to train us so that we are able to live righteous lives before You because of all we've been given in Jesus and the fact that we're united to Him. And because we're united to Him, we share in His mission. And we share in His resources for that mission. So help us to really grapple with that. Help us to think about what that looks like in, in our particular set of circumstances and, and our particular gift mix and who we are, where you've placed us. Give each of us wisdom as, excuse me, as we, as we talk together and reason together and encourage each other. so that we're spurring one another on to love and good works, and in particular, the good work of fulfilling your mission. Continue to instruct us in the days to come. Help us to listen. Open our ears. Continue to hold our hearts open. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.